This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, which is undergoing an extensive renovation to create more exhibition galleries, community and event space, a cafe, and more. See all the changes coming at virginiahistory.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six of season five of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm Rachel DePampa, your friend through this wild journey. Don't be sad. This is our final episode this season. We do have a bonus episode next week where executive producer Colton Weekly, digital director Kate Albright, and I hatch out all the ups and downs and behind the scenes of making this podcast this season for you. Always a fun time. And listen. Okay, let's dive in. We are turning back the clock on the week of August 9th through the 15th. It is not often you hear of the real atrocities carried out by the English settlers in early America. Brace yourselves for this story. The Massacre of the Paspahe Indians. It was August 10th, 1610. English settlers followed the orders of Lord Delaware to destroy the Paspahe town, killing two dozen, including the chief's wife and children. The grisly details of what happened that day nearly impossible to imagine, let alone forget. There are a lot of different accounts like this in early Virginia history that I think have been glossed over over time. All towards telling this story of the Jamestown settlement and perseverance, but at what cost? A familiar voice for our longtime listeners, always willing to help us out about the moments in history that are hard to hear. I'll introduce myself. I'm Luke Pecorero. I direct the Curatorial Services Division for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. And that includes the museums at the Jamestown Settlement and the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown. Linguists believe that Paspahe may mean at the mouth of a stream, and that's exactly where the town was located. Paspahe Town, the main site, which was the home and the district capital, for lack of a better term, for the Paspahe people, was located roughly about six miles above Jamestown Island. If you're headed up the James River towards Richmond, you get to the confluence of the uh, Chickahominy and James River, and that's roughly where the uh, site of the capital of the Paspahe District was. And the Paspahe were one of 30 or so odd tributary tribes who paid tribute to the paramount chief, Wahoon Seneca, better known as Powhatan. And that's why they became known as the Powhatan Indians. So it was a large, complex chiefdom. And the Paspahe were just one tribe of about 30 or so that made up that group. Today, this land is a residential and golfing development called the Governor's Land at Two Rivers. But what this town looked like in the 1600s has been uncovered through the years with the help of archaeologists. 
based on extensive archaeological investigations that were done in the late 1980s and early 1990s on the town site, the archaeologists uncovered the remains of about 43 longhouse patterns or yehakens. So these are going to be rather sizable dwellings that could accommodate easily up to 10 or more people. Lots of family units. There were 18 burials that were also discovered as part of that complex. These burials were grouped in a very specific area, so that perhaps suggests an area that was set aside in the town for a cemetery. So you're looking at a pretty large town center that's laid out in a complex array. So this goes far beyond just a small village or a hunting or fishing camp. And we have Captain John Smith's maps from that time period, which do show a sizable settlement. So it would have been a rather bustling town site. And we know from Smith's writings that the Paspahe people were capable of fielding 200 warriors. So that's just the male warriors that are counted, not the women and children that would have been part of that town too. And being just six miles to the north of what will later be called Jamestown, the Paspahe town and its people were the closest site of any significance to where the Jamestown settlers chose to locate James Fort. I want to be very clear on this. The Jamestown settlers didn't ask permission to settle on Jamestown Island. They, they just took it because it was territory that wasn't inhabited. It would have been used by the Paspahe people seasonally. And because of its location, it really wasn't a great spot for a permanent settlement like Paspahe Town was. So almost right from the start, this incursion into the Paspahe's territory created some tension between the Jamestown settlers and the warriors of Paspahe Town. Really, from what we understand from the writings that survive, while there were friendly overtures on behalf of the Paspahe people, there were great misunderstandings, miscommunication on behalf of the English colonists that often led to blows, you know, open warfare, harassment of the English settlers by Paspahe warriors. You have rocky relationships almost right out of the gate. Following that, when James Ford is established and set up, there's a period of time where the fort is essentially laid siege to by Paspahe warriors and also warriors from the neighboring Weyanoke district. So they also would have been allied with Palatine. The fighting did slow for a time. Supreme Chief Powhatan hoped to establish a relationship with these foreigners because he wanted the European trade goods, tools and weapons they brought, and he planned to make them his subjects. Powhatan attempting to make a strategic alliance with the Jamestown settlers, not understanding that they were there to stay and they weren't willing to be vassals to his tributary chiefdom, ordered the Paspahan Weyanoke to stop attacking the English villages. So that leads to a period of relative, well, not out and out warfare as we had been seeing beginning in 1607. This relative peace didn't last long. John Smith seems to have been the only colonial administrator who was able to keep and broker the peace, but he leaves the Virginia colony in 1609 after an accident. And this is a really important turning point because the winter of 1608 and 1609 is commonly referred to as the starving time in the Virginia historical record. The Jamestown settlers don't have crops that they're able to grow. They're confined to the fort. After Smith leaves, the English demand for food only grows. Enter Lord Delaware. 
who we've told you a little about this season in Episode 3 with the Sea Venture. Some folks pronounce his name Lord Delaware, others Delaware. After a while, you start to hear Delaware. Lord Delaware comes to take control of the colony, and he's a military man, out and out. He's not willing to really treat with Virginia Indians, and there again, relationships quickly sour. He's a member of England's aristocracy. He has wealth, he has power, he has influence. He's appointed by the Virginia Company to basically take control of the Jamestown settlement. And it's to his credit that martial law is imposed and the colony gets gradually whipped into some semblance of order. Once Lord Delaware assumes control of Jamestown, he sets an ominous tone for the nearby tribes. He gives an ultimatum to Powhatan. During this period, with Smith leaving and Delaware coming over to take control, there are a number of different skirmishes and fights that break out between English settlers and the members of the Powhatan tribes. English prisoners are taken. They are still in captivity by the time Delaware arrives. He demands their release. He demands food. He demands other things. Powhatan does not comply. So as a result, one of the things that Delaware says he's going to do is lay waste to the Paspahe town. And he's a man of his word. The next part of this story is barbaric and cruel. I'm not even sure that those words can adequately capture the ruthlessness or harshness of what happened here 400 years ago. It's a really brutal period in Virginia's historical past. Before we tell you what Lord Delaware ordered, you have to know a little more about the man who carried it out, George Percy. He was born in Sussex, England, the eighth and youngest son of a family of so-called Catholic conspirators in a largely Protestant nation. They've just gone through this rocky ascension where Elizabeth I dies without an heir. James VI of Scotland, later James I of England, ascends the throne, but he's got a lot of Catholic baggage, so to speak, to be able to rule a Protestant kingdom. I believe it's one of the members of the Percy family that participates in the Guy Fawkes gunpowder plot that attempts to blow up Parliament, reassert Catholic domain. So Percy effectively has kind of a black mark against the family name, which is it's suspected that's one of the reasons why he came to Virginia, if I remember correctly, too. He's also a little bit of a brash hothead. It's unsurprising that you would see him show up in the uh, historical record in this way. And he's also, as I mentioned, the eighth son. Not to give these guys a pass, but many of them were, you know, second or third sons. They stood to inherit nothing if they stayed in England. This was the great adventure. So you distinguish yourself either through the clergy and enrich yourself in that matter, or you go out and you start your own plantation, or you rise through the ranks of the military. There were all sorts of continental European conflicts where these second, third sons had the opportunity to learn the art of war, so to speak. You know, not to you know kind of couch all these Jamestown settlers is a colonial band of thugs, but they've got very, very sordid pasts, especially those who have served in the military before. Lord Delaware orders George Percy 
to command 70 men and destroy Paspahe town. On August 10th, 1610, those orders are callously carried out in a surprise raid. They assault it. They succeed in killing warriors, women, and children on site. According to the accounts from the time, soldiers put, quote, some 15 or 16 to the sword, while the remainder of the townspeople scattered. They burned houses and cut down the corn. And then Percy proceeds to take the queen of Wohenshopunk, who is the Werewants, or the district ruler of Paspahe, captive, along with her children. They're placed in a boat. Percy has the children thrown overboard, and while they're drowning, he instructs his men to shoot them. Seven children thrown into the water and shot at until they were all dead in front of their mother. He takes the queen back to Jamestown and it's under Delaware's orders that she is to be burned at the stake. Percy, depending upon whose account you read, takes pity on the queen, takes her into the woods and cuts her throat. Did Percy ever express remorse? To our knowledge, absolutely not. European warfare differed wildly from warfare amongst indigenous peoples in North America. When you see women and children being cut down and slain, this is a pretty big shock to the Virginia Indian tribes who aren't used to seeing things done this way. There were survivors from Paspahe Town that day, including the Queen's husband. Wohenshopunk and a few members of the Paspahe survived. They dispersed amongst other towns. But a year later in 1611, during a raid on Jamestown, Wohenshopunk is killed. That's really kind of the end of that dismal affair. We often hear about the perseverance and strength it took to found Jamestown not about whose story was extinguished along the way. It's a story of displacement, of land taking, of brutal fights such as this. At the bottom line, when you get down to it, it's just a complete and total lack of understanding between two groups of people. And I think it's unwillingness on behalf of the Jamestown settlers to really understand what kind of country they were getting into, what people they were going to be working with and you know, subsequently settling amongst. It's complicated. You know, two groups completely misunderstanding one another and then what the outcomes are of those misunderstandings. It, it almost always leads to violence and I feel like we are continuing to see that time and time again. The Paspahe as a tribe no longer exist. But it's highly possible the descendants from the survivors of that attack are among us today. We have many Virginia Indians who are descendants from the tribes that made up the Powhatan Paramount Chiefdom 
who still reside in their ancestral homelands. You have two of the oldest reservations in the United States of America up in King William County, where the uh, Pamunkey and the, Ma and the Mattapani reside. That was all the result of a treaty in 1646 that ended another war between English settlers and the Powhatan tribes. So with the Virginia Indian groups, many of them just getting federal recognition first in 2016, and then later several other groups got it in 2018. I think it's important to know, not to steal the title of your show, but how we got here. Why did it take so long for the tribes to get federal recognition? And this is just one of those instances, this story of disbursement of a community, of the effective wiping out of a tribe that you end up seeing played out in the 19th and 20th centuries when there's Virginia legislative law that attempts to erase Virginia Indians from history too. And that was all done through the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. That's another story in and of itself. <laughs> but you have to start somewhere with it to be able to understand where we are now. Was this genocide? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I would say, yes, absolutely. I mean, this was an attempt to wipe out and disperse indigenous people from the perspective of the colonizer. Delaware made his demands known to Powhatan, and when Powhatan didn't act or didn't give him satisfaction, this was the result. Absolutely. I think it was a calculated plan early on. And, you know, sadly, that's just kind of the colonizing mindset that you see played out through the history of the 13 colonies. August 10th, 1610. English settlers lead a surprise raid, wiping out Paspahe town, taking its queen hostage and murdering her children in front of her before slicing her throat. Barbarian behavior in the name of a new settlement, a new colony, formed on the blood and bones of a nation already there. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. The Panic and Fear of August 12, 2017 still echoes in our minds. Bodies flipped through the air, bones broken, 34 people injured, Heather Heyer murdered. Charlottesville. It's not just a place of a deadly rally or the name of it. It's not just the scene of a horrific crime. It's more than a day we'd all like to forget. Charlottesville. It's a city steeped in hundreds of years of American history. Where Thomas Jefferson settled and built Monticello. It's where he laid the foundation for the University of Virginia. Charlottesville, 
Home to dozens of wineries and orchards and distilleries, the gateway to the Shenandoah National Park. It's a community full of life and hope. We need to separate the city from the hate before we get to how we got here. Let's leave the violence, white supremacy, domestic terrorism to the event that took place that day. August 12, 2017, the Unite the Right rally. There was blood in the streets. It didn't, it didn't seem like Charlottesville. You'll remember, this all started about 24 hours before the planned rally was set to begin, the afternoon of August 11th. Word had spread. Thousands were expected to arrive from out of state. Fear mounted as high as General Robert E. Lee on his bronze horse statue, the very sculpture raised during Jim Crow, now the nucleus of the neo-Nazi ire, because city council was planning to remove it. Self-proclaimed pro-white activist Jason Kessler lived in Charlottesville and organized the event. White supremacists from across the country stormed the college town to protect Confederate monuments. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe released a statement. Virginia is the birthplace of the rights to freedom of speech and peaceful assembly that make our country great. McAuliffe went on to say, as we prepare for tomorrow's events, I want to urge my fellow Virginians who may consider joining either in support or opposition to the planned rally to make alternative plans. Many of the individuals coming to Charlottesville tomorrow are doing so in order to express viewpoints many people, including me, find abhorrent. That night, a federal judge would grant a temporary injunction allowing the Unite the Right rally to be held the next day at what was once called Lee Park. But this crowd of out-of-towners wouldn't wait to make their presence known. At dusk, hundreds of white men toting tiki torches flocked to the University of Virginia. Chants of White Lives Matter and Jews Will Not Replace Us are heard echoing across the campus as the marchers make their way to the statue of the university's founder, Thomas Jefferson. It's there they were met by counter-protesters. The two clashed at the rotunda, torches were thrown, and blows were exchanged before police arrived to break it up. At least one person was led away in handcuffs. Charlottesville's mayor, Mike Signer, called it a cowardly parade of hatred, bigotry, racism, and intolerance. But really, it was just foreshadowing what was to come at daybreak. The morning of August 12th, 2017, 8.30 a.m., thousands of protesters poured into the streets. We are right! 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 We
A horde of neo-Nazi extremists, white supremacists, Ku Klux Klan members, unafraid to show their faces, emboldened to protect a lost cause. They're met by hundreds of counter-protesters, like Lisa. I wanted to go and stand up against people who are violent and oppressive. By 10.30 a.m., the tensions bubbling over, police not engaging. Violence breaks out as the two groups clash once again, beating each other as officers watch the melee. I felt terrified and I was standing there as people were lining up in formation to march out and I thought, well, this feels like war. An hour and a half goes by before police finally declare an unlawful assembly. 20 minutes after that, Governor McAuliffe declares a state of emergency. At 1.19 p.m., the world is watching, and President Donald Trump tweets a call for unity. At 1.40 p.m., the moments, the sounds, the screams, a measure of hate will permanently drive the narrative. Twenty-year-old James Alex Fields Jr. rams his car into the crowd, sending humans flying through the air like ragdolls, shattering bones and lives. When I was hit, I had no idea what was going on. I, I had heard screaming, and I was just beginning to think, should I run? And then I heard, that was him hitting bodies. Lisa was thrown into the air. In a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph, her feet are seen sticking straight up as she's propelled from the impact of direct contact with Field's car. Lisa's forehead was cut, her jaw out of alignment, her hand badly broken, along with both legs. Alex Morris was walking with her teenage daughter when she saw a flash of light, heard a boom, and was knocked out. She came to with a broken leg. Thomas Baker was directly struck by the car, flipped upside down and suffered a concussion and torn ligaments in his arm and hip. Two sisters, Micah and Tay Washington, were inside their car when Fields slammed into them from behind. Injured themselves, Micah remembers seeing medics trying to save Heather Heyer's life. CEMTs fighting as hard as they can to revive someone. I mean, as hard as they can. I could see the, the intensity, the passion that they had behind trying to bring this woman back. It was something that I never thought that I would have to experience. Tay would later testify against Fields in court, saying she remembers seeing a woman's body on her windshield. Heather Heyer murdered in the mayhem. It doesn't go away overnight. Heather's friend, Marcus Martin, still suffers from the memories of that day. You try to, you try to look at things and be normal again, but it just don't go nowhere. Courtney Commander was next to Heather when the car hit. 
I'll never get my friend back, and some of us will never recover from our injuries. 32-year-old Heyer worked as a paralegal and spent much of her time as a civil rights activist. She was marching that fateful day with other counter-demonstrators. Heyer died from blunt force injury to the chest. Shortly afterwards, the president commented on what was going on in Charlottesville, saying during a press conference, quote, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. Following criticism that he did not openly denounce white supremacy, he was asked to clarify his remarks a few days later. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. I watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have, you, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. Heather Heyer's mother, Susan Bro, didn't hesitate to speak about her daughter in the hours after her death. I'm really not angry. I'm very sad. I'm very, very sad. But I'm, I can't be angry because angry will make me hate, and hate only leads to more hate. And I, there's just no point to that. Heather wouldn't have wanted that either. She would have said, well, why hate? What does that accomplish? What would that do for anybody? And so uh, that's how I raised her, and that's how I believe myself. In the midst of all this chaotic hate, another tragedy unfolded August 12, 2017. Virginia State Police were flying a Bell 407 helicopter over the rally. That chopper had just taken off to monitor the governor's motorcade after he arrived in Charlottesville to assess the situation. Inside it were 48-year-old State Police Lieutenant H.J. Cullen and 40-year-old Trooper Pilot Burke M.M. Bates. The chopper went down in a wooded area in a residential neighborhood on Old Farm Road in Albemarle County, killing both Bates and Cullen. I'll never forget telling my husband that night that a state police helicopter had just crashed. He instantly became frantic with worry. He said Burke was supposed to be training this week. He called Burke's cell phone several times. He played hockey with Burke. I'd met him, his wife, their twin children. It was a crushing night. Burke died one day before his 41st birthday. He had served with the Virginia State Police for 13 years and had only recently been assigned to the aviation unit. Governor McAuliffe eulogized him at his funeral. Burke was best friends with every one of my five children. We miss him greatly. That was a tragic day for Jay Cullen and Burke Bates in Charlottesville, Virginia. One of the worst days in American history. His brave, brave wife, Amanda, also spoke. Burke was so protective that the first line of duty funeral I attended was his. He told me time and time again, he never, ever wanted me to see that or know that pain. 
His job, his calling, was to protect not only the citizens of the Commonwealth of Virginia, but those that he loved and held most dear. Lieutenant Jay Cullen had served with the Virginia State Police for 23 years and was assigned as the commander of the aviation unit. He was survived by his wife and two sons. State Police Colonel Stephen Flaherty spoke at his funeral. He was a man of unwavering integrity. I would fly anytime, anywhere, in any condition, in any aircraft that Jay Cullen was at the helm of. James Fields Jr. was charged with murder and 29 federal hate crimes. In the days and weeks that followed, we would learn much more about him. Derek Weimer was a former teacher and remembers Fields' obsession and interest in extreme views. You know, he thought the Nazis were great and what Hitler did was great. And, you know, this whole like white supremacy, racial dominance thing, he was into that. And there were times that I just straight up sat him down and said, you know, you have students of different racial backgrounds and stuff here in this high school. Are you going to judge them? Are you going to, you know, basically say they're one way or another? You don't even know them as individuals because of this ideology and these beliefs you believe in? Senior year, he was real gung-ho on joining the Army. And he was, towards the end of the year, found out that he was denied. And it was because of a history of antipsychotic, you know, medication that was prescribed. And, you know, when you bring that into the picture, and, and you bring the views, and you bring you know, the views of Nazism, of white supremacy, and, and I mean, who knows what he was experiencing. You start to see how it, it is like this perfect storm. In a taped phone call from jail between Fields and his mother, Fields is heard lashing out at Heather Heyer's mother, Susan Bro, calling her a communist, an anti-white supremacist, who was trying to slander him. When Fields' mother said Bro had lost her daughter, Fields is heard saying that it doesn't matter and he called Bro the enemy. That picture right there from a guy who never met her captures her essence better than any picture I've ever seen. When you look at her picture, what do you see? The smile. We miss her laugh. We all miss her laugh. A year and a half into her grief, I had the chance to meet Susan Bro. She read to me the messages left for her daughter from strangers all over the world. Heather, you are a beautiful soul. You made me laugh. You made me listen. You made me smile. Goodbye, friend. You will be greatly missed. She was passionate about social justice. Susan's made it a mission to make sure we don't forget, and we work to better understand how this happened. If hate crimes are as underreported as they seem to be, do we have a really huge crisis on our hands? Do we have a minor crisis on our hands? What exactly is happening? We don't even know. She's tirelessly tried to make sure hate crimes are better documented in this country. Heather's death is at least a catalyst for change. I would not have made that choice. I wish we had woken up sooner. 
U.S. Attorney Thomas T. Cullen called the car rampage, quote, calculated, cold-blooded, and motivated by this deep-seated racial animus he has demonstrated throughout the course of his life. Charlottesville's never going to be the same. What happened on August 12, 2017 uh, serves as a marker, and it's indelible, and it will be with this community and the Commonwealth of Virginia and our country for all time. Fields pleaded guilty to the 29 hate crimes in a plea agreement that would save his life. Avoiding the death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison and given a second life sentence on state charges not long after. When he was sentenced, Fields apologized for the, quote, hurt and loss I've caused. He went on to say, quote, every day I think about how things could have gone differently and how I regret my actions. I'm sorry. That was a last-ditch attempt to get a reduced sentence. He's the least sincere person I've ever met. Survivors now have the final word. James Fields received the sentence he deserved for Heather's murder. Getting the maximum sentence reflected the severity and the atrocity of that crime. And I want people to make better choices for the future and not be like James Alex Fields. Susan Bro speaking up for her daughter. She would be excited that hate did not win. She would be excited that social justice does move forward. The biggest thing is that hate did not win today. August 12, 2017. A small Virginia city is propelled into the headlines across the world after a white supremacist drove his Dodge Challenger into a crowd of protesters. Nearly five years after that destructive day meant to unite the alt-right, Charlottesville's Robert E. Lee statue came down. Some argue its removal puts Charlottesville on the right side of history. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written by me, Rachel DePompa. Thank you to digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly for another fantastic season. You are both rock stars and we couldn't make this podcast without either of you. And a special thank you to associate producer Sam Maneri for all of your research and help writing in this episode. Kate, go tell your mama I was nice to you at the end of an episode. And many thanks. <laughs> and many thanks to our guest this week, Luke Pecorero, the Director of Curatorial Services for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Next week, Colton, Kate, and I are going toe-to-toe in our famous bonus episodes about the making of this podcast. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. We have an Instagram account. How we got here, VA, follow us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday. <laughs>